Welcome. Um, I'm happy to welcome you to the center. I think most of you have been here before, but if you're here for the first time, welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions on a lovely day when you begin to see the, the lawns open up and the flowers out, so it's a nice day to be here. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and happy to welcome you for this event today. I can't help but mentioning it's also the last um, scheduled public event of the center this academic year. So we've had a wonderful year and this is a great way to bring it to a conclusion today. So thank you all for coming and particularly for coming early. So usually our events are a bit later, but thank you for checking your calendars and being here at this earlier hour. So these events are among my favorites of the whole center's calendar because uh, a few years ago it occurred to me that we all faculty spend all our time writing these books and often our colleagues and others around campus just kind of congratulate us on, you know, great cover, great book. Um, <laughs> look through the index to see if their name is in it and something like that. And then I check my, I don't see my name there. Um, and just leave it at that. And yet so much of our um, time, it's, and it's related to our teaching, but uh, it goes into the research in these books, which then have a wide circulation outside. To have a conversation here, I think, is a really um, important value. And then to hear simply, I mean, from any author, um, how did you come to write the book? Why did you write this book? How did you get into this? And some of our authors are more confessional than others about what was hard about writing about the book, what was the good, satisfying part, what kind of seemed impossible by the time the book was done, and so on. But it's very interesting just to interact with the authors of the book. And then the author gets to choose uh, two discussants, sometimes three, to open up the book and discuss. So our procedure today, I'll introduce uh, Marla Frederick first. She will talk a bit about her book, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever. And then I'll introduce our two discussants who will take up and open up uh, parts of the book. They were uh, assured that they didn't have to give book reports. They're not no responsible for everything in the book, but rather pertinent questions, issues that are kind of lively and pertinent. So they will speak 15, 20 minutes maximum each. And then Marla will have a chance to um, take up a few of their points, not everything they say, but some points that they raised. And then for the last part of our session, before we finish it, let's say 5.45 or maybe 6 o'clock, is to bring their chairs up in the front here and then just a conversation with you and, and you get a chance to ask your questions and so on. Once I finish talking, I'll circulate the book in case anyone has not had a chance to see the book yet. So that's the way we do it and it's also informal enough that if you get hungry or thirsty while the session is on, you can feel free to go back and get something more. Don't be shy about getting up and down. People do it all the time, so um, relax in this context. So I'm happy to introduce Marla Frederick, who is our author and speaker today. She is professor of African and African American Studies in the study of religion here at the university. Marla earned her bachelor's in arts degree from Spelman College in 1994 and her PhD in cultural anthropology from Duke University in the year 2000. Uh, she's a, a well-authored, prolific author, uh, author of Between Sundays, for instance, Black Women and Everyday Struggles of Faith that came out in 2003. And this is a richly detailed ethnography exploring the complex lives and faith commitments of women in rural North Carolina. She also co-authored co a book, Local Democracy Under Siege, Activism, Public Interests, and Private Politics in 2007, which in 2008 won the Best Book Award from the Society for the Anthropology of North America. Her diverse research interests include questions emerging from the intersections of religion and race 
Gender, Media, Politics, and Economics. She's currently working on a, a manuscript, we'll have you back for this next book, um, with anthropologist John Jackson and Carolyn Rouse, entitled Televised Redemption, which examines how black Muslims, Christians, and Hebrew Israelites make use of media in the strategic deployment of their racial, economic, and religious views of social uplift. And of course, we have the center of attraction tonight, the book that we are um, celebrating, Colored Television, American Religion Gone Global. It teases out a triangulated approach to understanding how African-American and African-descended producers, distributors, and consumers of religious broadcasting approach and make meaning of mediated religion. The book addresses concerns related to the rise of prosperity ministries in poor communities, as well as the dramatic rise of African-American religious broadcasters on television. So we look forward to hearing about this book, and we welcome Marla Frederick. Wow, you guys look great. Um, thank you so much for coming out this afternoon. It's such a beautiful day. Um, and I want to thank Frank Looney and the staff here at the Center for the Study of World Religions for pulling this uh, conversation together. Um, I count it a great privilege. Um, so, I, and I should also say this about televised redemption. As I am talking, if I say, well, I said that in this book, and you could say, no, you actually probably said that in the book you're copy editing now. So <laughs> there's like, what did I say in colored television, and what am I saying now in televised redemption? Um, but that, too, is an ex exciting project, and hopefully it will be out um, by the, the, the end of this year. Um, so the question is, how did I come to uh, write colored television? And in some ways, um, the questions that emerged from writing Between Sundays kind of began some of my thinking on colored television because as I was interviewing women in rural North Carolina, many of them were talking about these televangelists that they watched and they were um, completely kind of enmeshed in that world of watching this, this new phenomena in rural North Carolina at the time of 24-hour religious broadcasting. And so I, as I was writing this project, um, Between Sundays, I was thinking the project I should be writing about is televangelism. And so then I decided that the next project would actually be on um, African-American religious broadcasting. And I decided to, instead of focusing on the US, focus on the impact of African-American televangelists outside of the US. And that's what took me to um, Jamaica. And that question was kind of reaffirmed, as I sat and watched television in Jamaica, seeing that the predominant kind of religious broadcasters on television were actually American religious broadcasters, which raised questions about power dynamics and why is it that American broadcasting is so pervasive um, in Jamaica. Um, but the other question that kind of animated my interest was not only African-American male televangelists, but these women televangelists who have had an enormous impact on um, how we understand or how people understand themselves as religious subjects. And so if you look at the literature, much of the earlier literature focuses on white male televangelists. Um, and of course, you know, Jonathan Walton's work fo focuses on an analysis of three African-American um, televangelists, T.D. Jakes, um, Eddie Long, and Creflo Dollar. 
And I knew that in reading Jonathan's work and other works that there needed to be an, a, a larger conversation around the women televangelists that were really reshaping how women thought of themselves as religious subjects, how they thought of themselves as either lay persons or persons with the capacity to preach and teach in their own right. Um, so I decided to focus on the impact of these televangelists in um, Jamaica. As I was there and thinking about the, the kind of power dynamics, it's one thing to do an ethnographic study based on interviews with people who watch television, right, to those who consume religious broadcasting. But as I was talking, it was very clear that there needed to be more of a triangulated approach. How can we have a conversation about the multiple interests that are involved in the making and distribution of religious broadcasting? How do we have a conversation about the consumers of religious broadcasting, as well as the producers, as well as the distributors of religious broadcasting? And so because um, I had access to talking to different communities of people, I decided to write this book in a way that's uh, in something, something of a conversation, if you will, between consumers, producers, and distributors of religious broadcasting so that people can get a kind of holistic understanding of what that medium is about because it has such a dramatic effect, um, not only in the US, but particularly outside of the US. And so that's kind of my framing for color television. I am looking forward to the conversation um, that is about to take place. And should I introduce Nimi, or are you going to bring back up? OK, great. <laughs> Thank you, Marla. Good start. So uh, we have two discussants tonight. The first is Nimi Wariboka, who is the Walter G. Mulder Professor of Social Ethics at Boston University. He did his BA studies in uh, University of Port Harcourt in Nigeria, an MBA at Columbia University in New York, and his PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary at Princeton. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Uh, Nimi Wariboka describes himself as a uh, transdisciplinary thinker who loves to unfold, refold, enfold, and energize past and present ideas and hopes in relation to the possibilities of future human flourishing. And in his very well-organized website, he indicates that there are five pillars of his scholarship, economic ethics, social Christian, Christian social ethics, African social traditions, Pentecostal studies, and philosophical theologies. And he illustrates this at the site by reference to five of his books, of his many writings. The Principle of Excellence, a Framework for Social Ethics, presents social ethics as action-provoking and guiding theories of praxis and actualization of potentialities for a more flourishing, inclusive, and creatively reconciled society. The second book, Focus of, uh, The Focus of God and Money, A Theology of Money in a Globalizing World, is a call for an alternative, inclusive, global monetary system that can better support developing countries. Ethics and Time, the ethos of temporal orientation in politics and religion of the Niger Delta, explores the emancipatory core of African culture. The Pentecostal Principle, ethical methodology in new spirit, develops a pneumatological methodology of ethics for public policies in pluralistic communities that are open to the spirit of God. And economics and spirit and truth is a moral philosophy of finance, 
that situates a social justice-oriented care of the soul at the intersection of radical continental philosophy, economics, and politics to craft an ethics of anti-fragility and potent freedom that might counter the fragilities unleashed in our social economic fabric by late capitalism and global finance capital. So Nimi is a wonderful discussant for this book, and thank you for being here today. Uh, once again, uh, thank you for the invitation, and also thank you to Mala. I've titled uh, my response, Metals and Movings of Color Television, the spirit is a bone. A response to Mother Frederick's color television, American religion gone global. I've always read Mother Frederick's work as a fine scholarship, trying to understand, describe, and explain the spirit of the black church. In her latest book, The Color Television, she conceives and presented that spirit as reaching beyond reaching beyond from the sea to the Chinese sea to much broader shores outside the United States. And she shines light on this global reach of the black church. So where does the spirit of, of the black church, is no more located only within the United States, as she did in uh, um, between Sundays, but she now extends it outside. So it's in that light I'm trying to look at how does she capture the spirit of the black church? I said, um, Mala's color television, um, American religion gone global, shows that scholars can no longer study the black church only in the United States. Through ethnographic and theoretical rigor, she examines the ways television encourages the globalization of black religion through the formation of new communities of black church in Africa and African diaspora around the world. The part of the body of Christ that is named the Black Church exceeds the limits of African-American membership. In the era of globalization and the emergence of the global commons, the Black Church, like the worldwide body of Christ, has become one immense cosmopolitan city or a world city. Fredericks offers us new ways of thinking about the Black Church, new maps of black religion to reorient us to its mystery, openness, and possibilities. We are summoned to think of the black church as people and their activities in the placelessness of social interactions and relations across the globe. This summons is undergirded by, by or embedded in a tension. While we are encouraged to think about what it will mean for black church studies to show fidelity to the possibilities open by the shift in existential speciality of the black religion, the black church becoming globalized, smooth, non-place, Frederick's works presupposes a certain level of placeness, a mediated space for black religion to function. The spirit of the black church that is reaching beyond the shores of the United States, finally moving as the wind, is an assemblage of mechanical contractions wires and satellites, journals of debit and credit, and the bureaucratic tools that is anchored to concrete placeness. This tension between non-placeness and placeness reminds me of the tension in Hegel's statement, the spirit is a bone. 
Hegel was referring to the argument of phrenology that the spirit is based on the human skull and there is nothing more to it. The shape of the skull determines the mind. What we regard as the space as the spirit is what goes on in the brain encased by the skull. The bone is the spirit. The spirit is nothing but is bone. But there is a speculative view preferred by Hegel that the spirit is not his bone, nor his appearance. The spirit, the mind, can assert its identity over the bone or any inert matter to sublet it. The spirit is strong enough to mediate any hard stuff. Hegel goes on to compare the materialist reductionist reading of the spirit is bone to those who can only discern the phallus as the organ of urination rather than as an instrument of both urination and insemination, a conjunction of the high and the low. A, a careful reading of Frederick's color television brings forth this kind of spirit bone tension. At some level, you wonder if the spirit of the black church or even the move of the Holy Spirit is all about the infrastructure of communication, communication cables, screens, set audiences, practice performance, and the brick and mortar, the brick and mortar of performative orchestration. At another level, you get the impression that the spirit or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is independent of the technologies of presentation and institutional skills, which is which. Frederick does not answer this question directly, but we can discern how she leans through a Hegelian analysis. If the reader of the color television sees only infrastructural power, then he or she is like those who can only discern the phallus as the organ of urination. But to see a possible path to the spirit from the failures, dense pragmatism or instrumentality of the typical orchestration of the black televangelist mega church is to be like those who can discern the phallus as an organ of insemination, the higher function of generation. Hegel's point is that we do not directly go for the best option or proper result with our first choice. But only through repeated failures. The choice of insemination, in quote, comes not through repeatedly choosing urination, comes only through repeatedly choosing urination. We arrive at the true choice via the wrong choice. If we try to directly discern the current state of the spirit of the black church from Frederick's book, we will infallibly miss it. We will only see a crude mechanism and miss the fine distillation of Christian doctrines, ideas, practice, and divine presence. We only need to read color television over and over again to find our way to its deepest lesson. This Hegelian approach is also important important for scholars interpreting the current failures of the black church. Now that I've stated how I intend to interpret the color television, let me describe how I intend to proceed with the rest of the tax at hand. There are two sections in my presentation. First, I will state the prehistory of color television so we can properly situate it in the deep structure of Frederick's scholarship. Second, I will attempt to discern the provocative intellectual path that she opened up in her book, but fail to follow. If one had read Between Sundays on page 219 of Between Sundays, she stated clearly that the issue of uh, televangelism in the black church should be something that should be tackled. So one is not surprised that this became our, our next book. 
So Color Television and Between Sundays reveal one of the fundamental tensions in the black church. The two books, if you read them together, reveal one of the fundamental tensions in the black church. And that tension is between personal transformation, individually focused, versus prophetic political activism, communally centered. The, the religious life presented in Between Sundays is more faithful to the fame prophetic stance of, of the black church than the spirituality that is revealed in color television. Insofar as these two forms of spirituality are integral to the black church, the first book almost had to call forth the second one if our scholarship is to remain faithful to the 21st century reality or to capture the emerging development in the black church. This call and response by the first book and its descendants, respectively, is done within a certain philosophical framework. In these two books, Dr. Malafredic is searching for the spirit, the real kernel of the black church in late capitalism. The spirit she's questing for is not one of true orthodoxy or straightforward prophetic resistance. In the two books, she manages to transform the external opposition between the prophetic social justice religion and its transgression in the form of personal transformation into an opposition internal to the transgression or black religion itself. The subversive sting, sting of our work is contained in our analysis of personal transformation. Those who cling to personal salvation in the midst of overwhelming inclination of the black church to public justice are the true subversives. This is not only because they balk against the grain, but also, and more importantly, their heavy humdrum life has a subversive character. For instance, the women who consistently tithe and give offerings to their churches are not only resisting consumerism, but are also from within building the black church, engaging their individual walls as private activists, as she uh, stated from page 168 to 185 in um, between uh, Sundays. These seemingly simple women of Halifax County do not have the strange halo of Martin Luther King, Colonel West, or Al Chapin. But the re re repetitive humdrum of their everyday lives and spiritual practices shows their creativity. Monotony here, according to Frederick, is not absence of innovation, diversity, or vitality, but a bearer of creativity and magic. Let us end this first section of, of the paper, of the essay, by, by highlighting some of the critical gaps in, in color television. First, Frederick's treatment of the media is one-sided. She celebrates the reach of the black religion outside the United States, inside black communities in, in Caribbean and Africa, but there is no investigation of how religious leaders in, in Caribbean and Africa are also influencing black religious lead, leaders and African-Americans here in the United States. Are the black communities outside the United States mere sitting dogs or passive receptacles for ideas coming from African-American evangelism? I'm sure the traffic is not one-way street. Second, Fredericksburg book is, an import, is in an important sense about the special relations between forms of Christianity, but it ignores a crucial aspect of the socio-spatial dynamics of the church, the relationship between the core and the periphery in the movement of the Holy Spirit over the past 2,000 years of Christian history. The geography of divine presence is shot through with a dynamic of core and periphery, concentration and dispersion. Andrew Walsh, 
the, the Scottish historians has analyzed Christian history and the missionary movement in terms of core peripheral relations, the ge geographically uneven presence of the Holy Spirit in regions over time. The historical movement of the Holy Spirit, according to him, is from the core to the periphery. Subsequent centers of Christianity always developed at the margins of earlier forms before assuming prominence, according to Andrew Walsh. Walsh's insight, in a certain way, in a certain sense, plays on the dynamics or relationship between black or American religion and the communities in Africa and the Caribbean, especially when the gravity of Christianity is shifting from the north to the south. What do the regional or special inequalities in the presence, intensity, and recession of the divine power mean for the continued expansion, growth, and survival of the black church located in the north, or its ability to project its power and presence overseas? This question is all the more important in the light of Frederick's treatment that downplays or ignores the potential contribution of, of Christianities of the South to the black religion of the North. Much more troubling than this one-sidedness is her silence on the fact that black religion is part of American power. And to that extent that it crosses national boundaries, it promotes imperialistic goals of the soft power of American empire. Black religion being immediate and mediated by religious broadcasts in the Caribbean and Africa, it is itself a representation of the certain theogonic, economic, and political powers of, of, of the United States that it mediates. It is not enough for Frederick to say that the locals are selectively adapting and authenticating the messages and images coming from black religious leaders to bypass the suffocating proximity of American powers in Africa and the Caribbean. We must also locate the place of major black Italian evangelists in the role of United, in the role United States plays in what Jim Locknancy, the French philosopher, calls the formation of the glomus. That is homogenizing global totality that is a land of exile, a veil of tears, instead of the formation of a wall which is meaningful and gives a sense of belonging to those in its totality. Finally, let me mention that she does not locate the story and the success of black television preachers in the larger context of African-American Christians and missionaries who have been going to Africa and the Caribbean to spread the gospel and to build and strengthen communities of faith. The history of transnationalism of, of American black Christians in Africa and Jamaica is well documented. Today, the international television ministries of black religious leaders are continuing to deepen such long-standing connection and commitment with technology and expertise. Thus, the ethnography of color television needs the history of Christian transnationalism, sociology of religious communities in Africa and the Caribbean that were set up by African-Americans before the emergence of T.D. Jakes, Crefford Dollar, Juanita Burnham, and it needs a theology of the global civil society if we are to complete the portrait it has started to paint. I'm just on my last page now, so about to round up. Now, my next thing is that in reading her work, you find that there are thoughts that develops from her work which I feel she never explored. Of course, that is not her fault. That is how a reader will always see that. There are parts she opened up which she never explored have been investigating the deep structure of the, expressed, of the expressed thought or pointing to the questions of the color television, of the questions the color television left unanswered. But I want to conclude by following a trail of thought implicitly unfolded throughout the book. 
I invite you, the reader, to join me to regain or uncover the creative impulse that, that, Fred, uh, um, that Dr. Frederick both raised up and also uh, missed at the same time in, in our work. Work, me to, work with me to connect what was already in Frederick more than Frederick herself. That's what was in her thought that she didn't um, always uh, pursue through. This, this is to say, reading Frederick to isolate the key breakthrough of her thought in this book as it relates to the notion of the charismatic city, a global civil society, then demonstrate how she necessarily missed this key formation of her own discovery. The notion of the charismatic city is inherent in Frederick's thought, but she did not comprehend this its implication deeply enough. She felt she was dealing with black or American religion gone global rather than an ethnography of the charismatic city. So in our work, in a way, it's not just American religion going global. It's this issue of the global civil society, of, of what in another work I've called the charismatic city. This, this a rhizomatic connection of Christian spirituality all over the world. So she's one of those that are capturing that kind of ethnography which have never really been done. It's not a question of studying missionaries or whatever, but this spiritual connection of, of, uh, that is happening all over the world uh, in spirituality with different Christian uh, uh, societies that is in a sense like what Cersei uh, called the global city. But so there's now a global rotation, a global civil society, what Stack has called global civil society, or what I would call the charismatic city. And that, I think, this is one of the first ethnographic insight into the nature of that charismatic city. And I felt that is something that should be highlighted, a breakthrough of our thought, but which she didn't um, appropriate or own onto. Finally, Frederick was de de describing the dimensions and the workings of the, of the charismatic city amid the global resurgence of religion, but did not quite recognize name or own it. She was describing the networks and the uh, 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 rhythms and spirituality that not only found them, but also feeds on them, and together they are reconstructing the shape of civilization in a globalizing world. Color television is as much an ethnography of black religion gone global as it is an ethnography of charismatic spirituality in a global city. Thank you. Thank you, Nimi, for raising some very substantive questions. Should be for an interesting discussion later on. And our second respondent is from our own faculty and needs no introduction, but I'll give one anyway. Uh, Catherine Brakus is uh, Charles Warren Professor of the History of Religion in America here at the Divinity School and in the Department of American Studies. She graduated from Harvard University with a BA in History and Literature of England and America, and her PhD is, from, is in American Studies from Yale University. Her research focuses on the relation between religion and American culture, with particular emphasis on the history of women, gender, Christianity, and the evangelical movement. Her current interests include the religious history of American exceptionalism and the relationship among Christianity, capitalism, and consumerism in the United States. And just to give you a feel for her work, I'll just point out a, a, a number, several of her recent or substantive writings. Uh, her book, Strangers and Pilgrims, Female Preaching in America, 1740 to 1845, explores the rise of female preaching during the 18th and early 19th century. 
Sarah Osborne's World, The Rise of Evangelicalism in Early America, argues that the evangelical movement emerged in dialogue with the Enlightenment. And then she's uh, a co-editor of Religious History of American Women, Reimagining the Past, a collection of essays that ask how women's history changes how we understand American religion as a totality. So we look forward to hearing from Catherine. Thank you. So thank you so much. I am so glad to be here to celebrate the publication of this book. And it's wonderful to see such a, a good audience here. Um, so listening to um, Professor Waraboko's comments, I have to say, um, it's a sort of truism of literary studies today that um, what authors intend is not always what readers get. Um, and as you'll see, my response to this book is, is very different. So we're, we're going to have a lively conversation. So um, let me begin by saying that Color Television, American Religion Gone Global, is a marvelous book. Those who have read Frederick's first book, Between Sundays, will not be surprised to learn that her latest book solidifies her standing as one of the most talented ethnographers of American religion in the field today. Color television is beautifully written and well-argued, and it offers a thought-provoking analysis of religious broadcasting in both contemporary America and around the globe. It will definitely be on the syllabus for my Modern American Religion course next year. So if there are any students here, this is where you need to come to read it. There is much to say about this book, but this afternoon I would like to highlight what I see as Frederick's main contributions to an understanding of a form of American religion that has gone global. So first, color television reveals the way that American religion, like American politics and economics, has shaped religious experiences around the globe. Frederick's interviews with Jamaican Christians offer compelling evidence of the impact of American broadcasting on people of color outside of the United States. Even though American missionaries in the 19th and 20th centuries brought their social and cultural values, value, values with them when they traveled abroad, the pace of this exchange has increased dramatically with the advent of religious broadcasting and most recently the rise of the internet. So one place where I would um, disagree with the previous response is that um, uh, Professor Frederick does actually place this in the context of a longer history of missionary movements. Frederick is careful to argue that globalization involves more than, and here I'm quoting from here, her, the wholesale exportation of American religious media and its simple absorption by Jamaicans. And in fact, she finds considerable resistance to the American version of the prosperity gospel. In a fascinating section of her book, she shows that many Jamaican crit Christians criticize American televangelists for their single-minded emphasis on wealth. Yet despite her emphasis on the importance of the local as well as the global, Frederick also shows that Americans are the dominant force in religious broadcasting in Jamaica, and pr presumably in many other parts of the world as well. Frederick carefully analyzes distribution networks. This is a, a great part of the book. And she finds that it is financially difficult for Jamaican networks to compete with American programs, even in Jamaica. 
In addition, evangelists in Jamaica lack the economic resources to export their programs back to the United States. This is why I think we get this sense of one-sidedness, but I think she explains this in the context of power dynamics. American religion, like American capitalism, has gone global in a way that Jamaican religion has not. Second, colored religion offers a compelling reading of the particular kind of American religion that has been exported to Jamaica. Based on her visit to the annual convention of the National Religious Broadcasters, this sounds like a bizarre experience, and interviews with employees at Trinity Broadcasting Network and Inspiration Network, Frederick concludes that the American religion that sells looks like neoliberalism in religious garb. It minimizes race, emphasizes individualism and self-help, and is closely aligned with the political interests of the Republican Party. When Jamaican Christians turn on their televisions to watch American religious celebrities, they learn that the solutions to the problems of poverty, sexual abuse, and oppression lie in personal choice rather than structural change. So I have to be open about my own biases and judgments here. I'm deeply ambivalent about the prosperity gospel because of its celebration of material prosperity and its insistence that individuals can create their own reality. Despite my conviction that faith is powerful, I do not believe that women or people of color can overcome deeply rooted structural problems like misogyny or racism by their faith alone. But after reading color television with its empathetic portraits of both religious celebrities and their audiences, I have a deeper understanding of why ordinary men and women are drawn to these broadcasts, and I also have more sympathy for their beliefs. The third major contribution of colored religion is its multi-layered analysis of producers, the televangelists, consumers, the audiences who watch their programs, and distributors, the companies that market their productions. Most sociologists and historians have approached religious media from a single angle. For example, Catherine Lofton's excellent book on Oprah Winfrey, Oprah, the Gospel of an Icon, concentrates almost exclusively on Oprah herself and her self-marketing. In contrast, Frederick asks what is at stake in religious broadcasting for everyone involved. This is enormously complex. The result is a sophisticated narrative of religious broadcasting that reveals the multiple reasons for its appeal. While distributors have been interested in exporting a gospel of neoliberalism, black televangelists like the Reverend Ike and Carlton Pearson have wanted to provide a model for black financial success and racial uplift. Describing these two evangelists as religious dandies, I'm not sure I could get away with that, <laughs> Frederick argues that they have performed their class and racial status in extravagant ways in order to undermine white associations of blackness with poverty. I, I admire many things about this book, but I am particularly impressed by Frederick's ability to combine critique with empathy. Her analysis of these two televangelists is both subtle and persuasive. She not only the recognizes the politically conservative aspects of their thought, 
but she also helps us to sympathize with their desire to overcome the enduring legacies of slavery. Adding yet another layer to her analysis, Frederick argues that white and black women televangelists have hoped to help other women overcome the stigma of promiscuity and sexual abuse. Juanita Bynum and Joyce Meyer have spoken openly and powerfully about sexual topics that have usually been taboo in church settings, including the trauma of rape. In the most powerful chapters of the book, Frederick highlights the voices of the ordinary women and men in Jamaica who watch American religious broadcasting. One, one might imagine from watching these shows that believers in the prosperity gospel are obsessed with material goods and financial success, but Frederick finds that they are critical of American excess. They hope for prosperity, but their definitions of it are modest. As one woman explains, I used to wear one dress. I can change my clothes now so I can say, yes, God is prospering me. Frederick also discovers that lay believers are generous in sharing what they have with others. Many religious celebrities have been accused of financial malfeasance, but their lay audiences believe that they are called to be a blessing to others. In a particularly poignant scene in the book, a poor, disheveled woman comes to the altar to make an offering, and with no money to offer, she gives away a pillow and a comforter set instead. This really reminded me of the, the widow's might. This brings me to the fourth major contribution of colored television, its focus on women. Many scholars of religious media have ignored women, but in fact, women are the majority of those who consume religious media. Um, unfortunately, I think Professor Waraboka's response today underscores the erasure of women from scholarship on religious studies um, and, and particularly religious media. He really has hardly mentioned women at all in his response. As Frederick shows, scholars who have ignored women's predominance have failed to recognize that the rise of the prosperity gospel has been accompanied by a new attention to sexuality, what Frederick calls a gospel of sexual redemption. By speaking about their past episodes of promiscuity or their sexual victimization, religious celebrities like Juanita Bynum and Joyce Meyer have made it possible for Christian women to overcome their shame about experiences of sexual violence. For example, Frederick introduces us to Valencia, who explains that Juanita Bynum's ministry has given her the strength to cope with her shame about being raped. Valencia's story is one of the most heartbreaking in the book, and her willingness to share it is a testimony to F Frederick's sensitivity as an ethnographer. Valencia recounts numerous episodes of rape including a time when she pleaded with a gunman to rape her instead of her 14-year-old sister. Frederick also introduced us to Marissa, who was repeatedly raped by her mother's boyfriend beginning at the age of 11. These women admire Joyce Meyer because of her willingness to testify about her own brutal experiences of sexual abuse at the hands of her own father. To use their words, they praise her for being real, 
for revealing the brokenness of her life instead of pretending to be perfect. Um, it's here in this discussion of rape, which is really one of the most um, uh, difficult parts of the book to read, that um, I just have to respond to the uh, opening analysis in which Professor Waraboka criticized uh, Marla Frederick uh, for her book somehow being like um, uh, uh, Hegel, who said, some people look at the phallus and they only see urination, whereas what they should be seeing is the power of insemination. I think this is a really unfortunate analogy to use um, about a book that has really heartbreaking stories about rape. Finally, color television makes a significant intervention in the study of black religion. Although other historians, including Curtis Evans, Barbara Savage, and our own Jonathan Walton, have also shown that there is no singular black church, Frederick's book helps us to see how complicated the racial dynamics of a globalized American religion have become. Frederick chooses to describe religious broadcasting as colored television for several reasons including the colorful style of religious celebrities and the importance of color TV. But the word colored also points to the diversity of evangelists who have become popular among black audiences. Frederick shows us that the boundaries of black religion are far more porous than scholars have imagined. So I don't think that this is a book about um, uh, where Marla Frederick is trying to identify the spirit of the black church. I think this is a book that really destabilizes the whole idea of a black church. Scholars have identified black religion with a tradition of protest, a tradition embodied today by ministers like Jeremiah Wright of Chicago. But black religion also encompasses T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, and white women evangelists like Joyce Meyer and Paula White, who are hugely popular among black audiences. So-called black religion sometimes involves white evangelists. To complicate racial categories even more, Jamaican audiences tend to see black American evangel evangelists less through the lens of race than nationality. They see Americans. In closing, let me ask Frederick two questions about the book, one about the ideas that undergird religious broadcasting and the other about the way that it's practiced. First, you argue that the business of broadcasting, and here I'm quoting from you, alters religion and the experiences of the faithful. Although you show the way that distributors have promoted a particular kind of Christianity, I would have liked to hear more about how religious broadcasting has shaped theology, especially images of God, um, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. How do televangelists portray the character of God? Do their Jamaican viewers see God in the same way? My question comes from your brief discussion of the way that Pentecostalism, with its emphasis on freedom and individualism, seems aligned with neoliberalism. Second, at the end of your book, you argue that the rise of the internet is having a democratizing effect on religious media by making it possible for evangelists to spread their ideas without the sponsorship of politically conservative distributors. So let me just read a quote from the book, uh, from the conclusion. As the democratization of religious media through the internet and social media takes full shape, it is likely that popular religious media narratives will be disrupted by new ideas from people across the globe and the theological spectrum, 
not just those savvy and wealthy enough to survive on religious television. You suggest that the internet might make it possible for black liberation theology to spread or for women's ministries to become even more popular. So I, I have to confess that I hope you're right, but some of my own research has focused on a different historical period, the early 1800s, when it also seemed as if access to a new kind of media, in that case cheap print, would topple the authority of religious elites. During the first decade of the 19th century, African Americans founded independent black churches and African-American men and women, as well as white women and lower-class white men, gained renown as popular religious leaders. But democratization proved to be elusive. Perhaps the internet will make it possible for people around the globe to encounter a greater variety of religious programming, including programs produced outside of the United States, but some scholars of the internet have suggested that users tend to silo themselves instead of engaging in true intellectual exchange. In addition, we know that even now, the internet is not truly a democratic space. Businesses pay search engines for favored placement. We've all experienced this. Jockeying to be ranked highest in online searches, even if they're not uh, very relevant. Perhaps religious broadcasters will soon find themselves competing to outspend each other in internet exposure, just the way they outspend each other now in religious broadcasting. These questions grow out of my wish that colored television had been a longer book. This is not something I usually say. This is usually only true about novels. I would have liked to learn more about every facet of the story that Frederick tells in this book, from distribution networks to lay experience. I can say without exaggeration that this book has transformed the way that I think about the global impact of American religion. So thank you. Um. So I do want to thank Professors Voraboka and Professor Brakus um, for taking the time to actually read colored television and then for taking the additional time to write um, very thoughtful responses. And I have to admit that I am not um, hearing these responses for the first time. Um, there was no expectation or requirement that they send me their comments in advance, but Professor Waraboko sent them to me like two weeks ago, um, and and Catherine sent me hers yesterday. I mean, it, it it was it was just such a gift because it gave me time to really think and process um, how I was thinking about their responses, and so I've I've kind of written down a response um, for Professor Waraboko, and I've written down some notes for a response for um, Professor Brekas, and so. Um, I'll read these responses and then we can, I guess, move into uh, Q&A. Um, Professor Boraboka makes several assertions about the text and then offers critiques of the text. Um, I, of course, will not address them all, but I want to address what I see as some of his major concerns. Um, he believes that after reading Between Sundays and Colored Television that I am trying to find, as he describes it, quote, the spirit of the black church. Um, that I've committed kind of to studying the religious life of black American Protestants is of no doubt, um, but that I have looked for a kind of spirit is the very thing that I warn my students against. 
um, this is the kind of Achilles heel, though, of black religious studies, that there's a history of articulating, quote unquote, the black church as a monolithic whole, from scholars like E. Franklin Frazier to C. Eric Lincoln wrestling with the presumptive death of the Negro church and the presumed resurrection of the black church. Um, during the civil rights era, the assumption has been that there is a coherent ideological and existential essence to what the black church is. But scholars have long challenged um, this assumption. Anthony Penn questions precisely this notion in his article, What is Black Religion? Uh, Barbara Savage um, takes pen to paper and asserts assertively, makes a uh, kind of clear assertion, quote, despite common usage, there is no such thing as the black church. Um, it is an illusion and a metaphor that has taken on a life of its own, implying the existence of a powerful entity with organized power, but the promise of that also leaves it vulnerable to unrealistic expectations. The term, she asserts, is a political, intellectual, and theological construction that symbolizes unity and homogeneity while masking the enormous diversity and independence among African-American religious institutions and believers. Given this, our own uh, Jonathan Walton has paved the way for talking about African-American televangelism by examining the ways in which televangelism disrupts an assumption about the idea that true black religion is embodied in black liberal Protestantism, a scholarly assumption that has often ignored the contributions of the types of Pentecostal traditions that have embraced mass media. I take these critiques to heart in my own work and expand on them in this text. I'm not trying to find the spirit of the black church, but rather trying to identify its complexity. As African-American and white women preach to large audiences of people of color around the globe, how do we understand the parameters of black religion? When Paula White, um, a white female televangelist, upon the invitation of T.D. Jakes, speaks to the International Megafest Conference in South Africa with thousands of people gathered, some people even sitting in trees to watch. I mean, it's a massive number of people. I beg the question, is that black religion? And if so, what are the parameters of such a designation? Is it the preacher? Is it the theology? Is it the history, the aesthetics of the service? or the constitution of the congregation? I believe that we as scholars have to wrestle with that question, and I believe it's still an open question. Furthermore, I want to point to the ways in which, um, in this text, religion preached and espoused by black televangelists worldwide is more, quote unquote, American religion than it is canonical black religion. The text thus explores this Americanness um, this infatuation with success, this attention to individualism, and its association with free market capital, capitalism. The text wants us to explore these ideals as central to the making of religious broadcasting and thus to the making of African-American religious broadcasting. By focusing in the subtitle on American religion gone global, I further want to turn on its head the notion that American religion is normatively white and black religion is black, arguing instead, along with other scholars, that the worship and practices of black Christians are as central to the story of American religious history as are the stories of the Puritans and the Quakers. 
It is the laying out of this work early on that has me stumped in some ways at the critique. Um, and yet I am talking about black people and black women doing the work of ministering to um, black and brown communities. That said, Waraboko further suggests that I'm trying to find a place for pleasure and prophetic practice to coexist. In some ways, I certainly am following in the ways in which congregants narrate their relationship to prosperity gospels. But more importantly, I'm trying to narrate the tension played out between prosperity gospels and the rise of what I call gospels of sexual redemption. In this way, the larger framework of the book is about how these two narratives have become central ideals in the rapid expansion of religious broadcasting. To tell this story, however, requires talking about not only the men who produce religious broadcasting, but also the women. While the book is about race, it is also and quite centrally about gender. There are few references to female televangelists in any scholarly publications on the subject, and yet someone like Joyce Myers is reportedly to reach into the homes of 4.5 billion people with a B worldwide. Um, that is an untold story that colored television narrates and explores the ways, um, um, and it explores this in um, great detail. Finally, I want to say a word about the focus on black American televangelists and female televangelists. Waraboka claims that my treatment of the media is one-sided, that there is, quote, no investigation of how religious leaders in the Caribbean and Africa are also influencing black religious leaders and African Americans. This is in part true. My study is not of the um, Caribbean influence in the US or the African influence on US black Christians. Um, for me, that's a different ethnographic book project that reaches beyond the scope of this particular narrative, though it is an important story. But he takes the assertion a bit farther to ask rhetorically, are the black communities outside the United States mere sitting ducks or passive receptacles for ideas coming from African-American evangelism? And to this, the answer is absolutely not. This is why it is important that my book is about producers, consumers, and distributors of religious broadcasting, because the narrative is a narrative at once about competing interests, but also about power differentials between producers and distributors on one hand, but also between distributors in the US and distributors in the Caribbean. On the first page of the text, I start by talking about the dramatic ways in which African, Caribbean, Korean, Latin American televangelists are reshaping the landscape of religious broadcasting. From Oyedepo of Winter's Chapel in Nigeria to Mensa Odebill and Duncan Williams in Ghana to David Cho in South Korea to Bishop Idir Macedo of the Universal Church in Brazil, I talk about the size and reach of these ministries to emphatically assert that religious broadcasting is no longer about white Protestant men from the US and that people from the diaspora are dramatically reshaping our religious landscape. I spend time talking exclusively about the persuasive power of Miles Monroe and Sunday Adelaja, a Nigerian-born Pentecostal pastor who pastors the largest church in Eastern Europe, in the Ukraine. The church has over 120,000 members, okay? Go figure. Um, but I talk extensively about them and their influence 
um, in, in a worship service that I attended in the Caribbean. They were the, the guest speakers. But even more importantly, in some ways, in the televangelists I talk about, um, I talk about the uneven structures of globalization. And I do this through interviews with not only pastors in Jamaica, but also station owners. I discuss in great detail in the final chapter the uneven ways in which religious broadcasting is produced and disseminated globally. The economic constraints on local stations to produce quality cable programming, that is 24 hours. You have to produce 24 hours daily of quality programming. That takes a lot of money. And the ways in which they tap into American broadcast television to communicate their message. In other words, because they can't, there's not enough, there are not enough pastors and churches that can produce that type of high quality programming. They have to tap into the American satellite and broadcast on their networks American televangelists for free, right? And then have to try to write back to American televangelists and say, will you send us money? Because by the way, we're broadcasting your, your programming for free. Um, and so <clears throat> I talk also about the ways in which they resist mercy and truth um, network in particular. And so the book is not at all silent about power and the extent that it crosses national boundaries to promote the imperialistic goals or the soft power of um, American empire. Um, finally, Warboko wants me to talk about the charismatic city, a concept that he develops in his book, The Charismatic City. Um, that I don't do this is um, problematic for him, and he feels as though I have danced around the subject without seeing it for myself. Um, but here I would only suggest that his book came out in 2014, um, and mine came out at the end of 2015. And so I'm sure that given proper time, his ideals would have been more integral to my analysis after all the attention given to religion, globalization, and the challenges of the urban city in his text certainly and absolutely resonate in my own text. Um, and so those are my, my thoughts. So they're just some of the major points. Um, and then Catherine Breka's um, remarks are also rather helpful and important in ways um, that she takes up some of the central arguments of my book and offers some critiques. And so I want to answer both of her questions. Um, the first question around how religious broadcasting has shaped theology, especially images of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and how do televangelists portray the character of God? <coughs> I want to say, uh, talk also about how they've shaped the, the women's theology around women preachers. I mentioned this briefly in my opening remarks, um, but I saw this expressly for the first time in Halifax, when I did my research in Halifax County, where a woman um, t told me the story where she walked into a church, she and her friend, they sat in, in a service as a Baptist church, and she realized that that evening's speaker was a woman. And so she and her friend both adamantly disagreed with women, the idea of women preachers, and so they got up and left the service. And she said, subsequent to that, she would watch religious broadcasting, and she kept seeing Joyce Myers preach. And Joyce Myers was such a phenomenal preacher, she thought, this woman must be anointed by God, and so God must anoint women to preach. And so now she's an adamant supporter of women preachers, right? So it has some kind of effect on people's theology, um, I think, in striking ways. 
Um, and, you know, unfortunately, because of the, the mass marketing of American entertainment television, I also think it has the capacity to help feed into um, uh, reality television, right? So there's a reality program that was on last year called Preach, and it was based on these women, what they call them prophetesses. And so it, it was just, um, it was a spectacle, if you will, of many of the kind of vices of these women and the ways they interact with their congregation. And um, a petition was signed, 15,000 people signed it to get it off the air. And so it has, it, the, the distribution has ceased. But that took it to the extreme, right? So we have women preachers, now we have these crazy women <laughs> preachers, right? So there, there, there's a way in which the media can kind of tap into a phenomena and then ex exploit it. Um, and so, um, and then the other thing I thought about, the, about the ways in which the character of God is um, understood has to do with um, the shift away from God as a kind of prosecutorial God to a benevolent God, right? Away from sin towards actualization. That God is seen as a rewarder of good things to those who are good. And so, and this comes out in a lot of the literature, more recent literature, not only on religious broadcasting, but on um, um, the, the message of um, uh, um, chastity movement. So making chastity sexy, a book by Christine Gardner, where she talks about how God is seen as not the one who kind of comes down with a hammer and sledge if you have sex before marriage, but God loves sex and sex is wonderful and crazy and amazing if you wait, right? And so the idea is that these, these huge media campaigns are done around the kind of wonder and spectacular amazement of sex, but it's geared towards teenage um, youth, or, or geared towards youth, and the presumption is that God is this great reward only if you abide by these particular rules and regulations. Um, and in some ways, that same thing can be said of the prosperity gospel. Like, God wants to give you lots of money, but you've got to give first, right? God is a great rewarder of those who kind of sacrifice and give. Um, and, and lastly, um, there's this notion of God, the Bible verse, God helps those who help themselves. Um, <laughs> there's a sense of God is kind of wrapped in a kind of individualism. Um, and that kind of goes back to the ideas that I'm trying to develop around um, neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is not only about the kind of freedoms of the market, but it's also about the retreat of the state, right? So it's based on a kind of privatization of responsibilities. Um, and what's interesting about this idea, um, because it, there's a new book out, well, I don't know, maybe came out a year or two ago, um, called Mississippi Praying by Carolyn DuPont. It's a wonderful text where she's talking about um, evangelical um, acceptance of the retreat of the state um, at a time when African Americans were making demands of the state. And so the kind of evangelical logic of personal responsibility kind of went co coincided with the kind of moment where blacks are at demanding something of the state, that the state be held responsible. And so that, that kind of um, moment then made blacks responsible for their own kind of economic, social, um, problems as opposed to the state being responsible for them. Um, and so that kind of moment is what then kind of morphs 
over into this present moment where you consistently see a kind of individualized approach to um, upward mobility and care for oneself, et cetera, um, in religious broadcasting. Um, <clears throat> and then the, the second question she asked is about the democratizing effect of religious media. And I think here we both have this hope, right? And, I, and I, that was a great point about the silos um, that people watch the internet in. Um, I came to, <laughs> to this, um, the conclusion of the book by <coughs> thinking about religious broadcasting, the ways in which televangelists talk about it, because I interviewed <coughs> Carlton Pearson and Reverend Ike. Carlton Pearson was so just wonderful and gracious in his answers and his reflection on his long-term, um, long tenure in religious broadcasting, where he talked about the kind of um, amount of money that it takes to be on religious broadcasting. He, he describes it as um, like a wild animal park where the alligators are constantly after more and more money to pay for the airtime. And in that context, um, I thought about the internet as a democratizing factor because of two stories. One I tell in the book and one, one I don't tell. The one I tell in the book is about um, a pastor in Atlanta named <coughs> E. Dewey Smith who has become enormously popular now um, and has a television program now, but he built his ministry primarily through the internet. Like, you, you know, T.D. Jakes had him speak at his conference last year and T.D. Jakes was introducing him and he was like, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm introducing somebody who my staff kept saying, do you know T.D. Jackson? And I would say, no. And then I have a friend say, do you know, do you, I'm sorry, do you know E. Dewey Smith? And he'd say, no. And he's like, do, do you know E. Dewey Smith? And he, he just went back and forth about how everybody around him knew about E. Dewey Smith, but he didn't know about him because E. Dewey Smith was not on television. He was on the internet. So you had to be kind of uh, savvy with the internet to kind of know who E. Dewey Smith is. And so he built his ministry over the time, and I interviewed his media marketing person. Um, he built his, his, his ministry over time, over the internet. And then once he became more popular and <clears throat> they were bringing in more resources to pay for religious broadcasting, he decided to go on the Word Network, which is a smaller network than TBN and ISPN, but he's on the Word Network regularly now. Um, and so that's how I talk about, in some ways, the democratizing effect that people without the kind of resources of the big televangelists can have a presence on, um, in media. Um, the, the story that I don't tell in the book is the story um, of Teresa Harrison, who is the founder of a magazine called Gospel Today. And it was the largest kind of black gospel um, magazine over the, I would say the last um, two to three decades. And um, it had wide circulation. She was often distributed in um, the Christian bookstores. You could purchase her magazine in Christian bookstores. And so uh, several years back, probably seven years now, um, the title, and it, this goes to power and you know who's in rooms making decisions about what can be distributed and what can't be distributed. Uh, uh, maybe about seven years ago now, she placed on the cover of her magazine an image of several female pastors to talk about women preachers and women pastors. Um, when she did that, um, the Christian bookstores that distributed her magazine pulled the magazine from the shelf and refused to distribute her magazine anymore because it went against their teachings 
on um, female pastors. The magazine almost closed, except for the fact that the internet had started. And so she was able to transition the magazine um, to the internet and continue kind of distribution that way. But it had that kind of effect where you realize these big kind of outlets for distribution also regulate what people have access to and what they don't have access to. But the internet allows you to still kind of promote your ideas and keep your ideas alive. Um, and so those are the two stories that I, I thought of there. Um, so with that, we can open up for discussion. Marla, thanks so much for Themes. Uh, one of the really fascinating points uh, that I found articulated was this, this sort of tension between globalization on the one hand and pushback against it uh, on the other, for example, in Jamaica. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. I'm particularly curious, you mentioned Ukraine. Um, and I'm wondering, is, is there some contrast there with Jamaica? We've got a former communist. Uh, Black country there, presumably anti-capitalist and so forth. Um, or if you could just pick any part of the world uh, that, mm, what, what should I say, uh, receives the American prosperity gospel in um, a different way. Uh, yeah, this is almost like globalization is in some ways about the kind of triumph of capitalism, right? And so with Sunday Adelaja, when you listen to his message in Jamaica, and you, if you listen to his messages from Ukraine, there's a strong, he has an entrepreneurial ministry in his church where they're trying to really develop a kind of economic <coughs> um, um, vibrancy amongst its community, but it's around entrepreneurialism. And one of the things he talked about in Jamaica was you need to be business owners, you need to own, you know, have do dominion over your particular spaces. And so there is a sense that capitalism pr provides that, provides an opportunity for you to be kind of dominion takers. And um, with the issue of globalization, there's pushback, if you will, um, mostly, I mean, from the people who watch religious broadcasting, certainly they have critiques of the prosperity gospel, because sometimes this emphasis on entrepreneurialism and money and markets can become overwhelming. But you see the pushback, particularly for me, when I interviewed um, station owners in Jamaica who are glad for the opportunity to distribute um, Caribbean-based preachers. And one, um, the owner of Mercy and Truth Television, talked about how he wants to be the TBN of Jamaica, right? So TBN is the large conglomerate in the U.S. He wants to be the TBN of Jamaica. But he wants to distribute Jamaican televangelists and preachers around the world. And he talks about the constraints with that, the need for quality programming and the exorbitant amount of money that it takes to have somebody stand behind the camera and film and then have somebody in a room to edit and then to make sure that the, 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 the equipment that you have is high quality equipment which costs lots of money. And so when pastors in Jamaica are faced with the question of do I buy this elaborate, develop this elaborate media ministry or do I do the work of meeting the needs of the people in my community, hands down, it becomes how do I meet the needs of the people in my community, not how do I build this elaborate media ministry. And so 
there's pushback because there's a, a desire to export more of the Caribbean to the world, but also a realization that there's a heavy power differential with American religious broadcasting coming into, into the Caribbean. I should say also that Nimi and Catherine, anytime you want to jump in, you're welcome to jump in on the questions too. But other questions? I mean, it's, it's more on a comment on this, on this line of thought um, from, from another Caribbean island, right? Um, that this, it, it seems on the one hand that the, these negotiations between, of, of how do we interpret uh, religious ideas and religious practices in our own context has always been in the Caribbean a negotiation uh, with colonizing religion and and also kind of a ref refusal to then give it back, um, <laughs> right? But but rather that negotiation between uh, receiving and then claiming some rights to do something uh, about it. So it's some some something that seems to be uh, intrinsic to the to the Caribbean negotiations of, of religion. Um, and the other element that you you maybe think about is is then how how the television in general changes that dynamics not only in relation to uh, to religion but in the case of the other islands of the Caribbean also in religion in relation to the language. So religious language is renegotiated because of the influence of television, not only religion, uh, not only religion more broadly, I mean, all broadcasting, right? But then it, it does something to religious language that is really interesting. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. I mean, and I think about, part of me thinks about Miles Monroe's emphasis on like, uh, taking dominion and establishing kingdom priorities and that, that there's a language around what it is that Christians are doing here and around the world. Right? Yeah. And just one more point on that. The, the, it, it, uh, it has a different resonance when, when that is preached in islands that do not have sovereignty over their land, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to claim dominion where you actually don't have it is a different kind of thing. Um, so you talked a little bit about the democratizing aspects of the internet and how that might change um, the, the shape of sort of this uh, phenomenon. And I'm curious if you think, um, in addition to giving voice to different communities of, uh, of people, especially women, um, if the interactivity of the internet may create a co-productivity between producers and consumers of the media. Um, so I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Absolutely. Um, so what was fascinating about um, interviewing E. Dewey Smith and his media um, director <coughs> was sitting in and watching him do this very thing, right? Um, so his media producer, just for background, used to be the producer and the director, the <coughs> media ministry director for Creflo Dollar, right? You go from Creflo Dollar to Egypt, it's like two different worlds. So Creflo Dollar, as his media director, he told me that he had to raise a million dollar, he had a million dollar a month budget that he had to raise. In other words, 
to, to distribute Creflo Dollar on all the stations that he is on. And if you've ever watched Creflo Dollar, he's, he's not a 30-minute preacher. He's an hour-long preacher, right? So if it costs $20,000, if you're on primetime, it costs maybe $20,000 for every 30-minute segment, and you're on once a week, that's $80,000 out of your budget, right? Now, that's if you're on one station. Well, what if you're on two or three or four or five stations? What if you don't preach for 30 minutes, but you preach for an hour? So you see how the numbers add up rapidly. So he was a media director for Creflo Dollar's ministry for several years, and he, he talked about the need to, and I'm getting to your question, he talked about the need to uh, send out um, support letters monthly and make sure that those support letters came back in, those prayer letters. Um, and so when he's, he, he, he did a tenure at another ministry and then ended up at E. Dewey Smith's ministry where he had, you know, several thousand dollars to work with, but nowhere near a million dollars. And so the base of his operation was the media and the internet. And so he took me through these charts where they have um, how many likes um, E. Dewey Smith gets on a particular sermon, right? And the responses to those sermons. And when he did a sermon on, um, it's like parenting, but he talked about single mothers and raising children, and how many how many likes he got then. And so he 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 he, he spliced. He said, "I need to put more of that sermon, more of those pieces of the sermon on the internet." So then you could circle back around, splice more of that section of the sermon, and put that on, so that people would kind of come back. So there is this kind of dynamic where they are mutually, if you will, creating what's taking place on what we see on the internet, what clips we get a, you know, a, a window into. Can I, can I just build on that question and ask, do you think that they actually change the content? In other words, if somebody preaches a sermon and the response is, I hate what you said about that, does it actually affect what gets oh, preached? Interesting. Um, you mean like at the next sermon? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Well, you know, what's, what's been interesting, and, and you know, maybe I should just do a, a, a full book on, on E. Dewey Smith, but what's been interesting is he is a, a pastor who, after um, uh, Caitlyn Jenner um, went through her transformation <coughs> and, uh, as a transgender woman, E. Dewey preached this um, sermon where he said um, basically he said something to the effect of and I'm not quoting him this is this might recall that there is no because there was all this backlash and Christians in particular were like really troubled by it and so he gets on stage um, in his pulpit and he says there's no difference between me and Caitlyn Jenner Caitlyn um, um, Bruce spent his years trying to put on women's clothes, his younger, his younger year trying to put on younger women's clothes, and I spent my youth trying to take off women's clothes, right? So he flipped it on its head, this notion of who is the big sinner, right? Because that was all of the critique coming from. Um, and so he's done all of these kinds of ongoing <coughs> moments where he offers a critique of the church's stance on, say, gay, lesbian issues, and he has received sharp criticism for those sermons, but he hasn't changed. Interesting. 
preaching those sermons. So it's, it's just an interesting um, kind of dynamic. Now that's just one example. I don't think that that will carry across the board, but it's, it's been fascinating to watch that ministry um, over the last several you know, months. But, but in general, um, that goes so precious like that are very sensitive to what works and what does not work in general. Mm -hmm. Because for you to keep the people keep coming back and giving, they're extra sensitive about what works. So they may hold their ground on certain things about how they want to deal with certain sins or so. But generally, they have an ear about what is working with the congregation, what is working, what someone works, or even the way the someone is delivered. So, 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 so they pay close attention because the whole idea is to retain the people to bring them to the point where they will keep coming back and giving. So if, if you are not sensitive to how your sermon is going across, you will lose your congregation or your your audience. So there is some they, they pay attention to. There are certain things they will say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to change. But they are very market and consumer savvy in terms of reading their audience. Yeah, because the. Um Carfell Dollar eventually took down that petition to have, you know, the, everybody buy him a, a, a clear jet. Thank you so much for um, for your talks and for your questions and responses. I had a, um, a question in regards to your fourth chapter on female televangelists and the gospel of sexual redemption. Um, in particular, um, your argument that um, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Juanita Bynum are kind of creating this new gospel around kind of sex and gender and the um, and the ways in which women can um, find God through kind of proper um, proper sexuality and proper kind of iterations of their body. And I'm wondering if you find or if you have any thoughts about whether this sort of message is gender specific to female televangelists or is this more a function of the audience, right? So in the same way is T.D. Jakes, for instance, when he's preaching to his woman that are at loose congregation, kind of talking in the same kind of language of the gospel sexual redemption. Or for instance, E. Dewey Smith, when he's talking to his um, women uh, congregants, he's also talking in this kind of language of sexual redemption or what you're doing with your body. Um, so is this, a, I'm guessing I'm asking, is this a female message or is this a woman's message that versus is this a, tele, a, a certain televangelist message? Yeah, that's a great question. So it is a certain televangelist message because I talk in that same chapter about T.D. Jakes' woman now are loose and how he's talking about all these subjects that women said they never heard. Go introduce, <coughs> interviewed a woman in Jamaica who said she never heard anyone. Um, the, the woman that introduced one woman that interviewed had been raped three times in her life, right? And so she's talking about this um, these experiences, but she also says, and I never heard anybody speak publicly about rape in Jamaica, but watching America the first time I heard someone speak publicly about it was watching American television, and Oprah Winfrey was doing a segment on rape, and then subsequent to that, it was listening to the sermons of T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer, and so. There's a way in which people like Jakes do preach this gospel of sexual redemption. One of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book is that the kind of immediate rise of female televangelists and their phenomenal success kind of coincides with their preaching these gospels of sexual redemption. Not that they're the only ones preaching that, but <coughs> that their their 
phenomenal success. The reason I've heard so many people say they love Joyce Myers is because they know her testimony. They love wanting to buy them because they know her testimony and they go back to those testimonies consistently. Yes, I encountered Reverend Ike in the 1970s in New York City. Is he still alive? No. Oh, he, he passed away, um, I don't remember the year. I interviewed him, I think 2005 or 2006, and he passed away, I think maybe 2007, 2008. But it was a phenomenal interview. something I hope I still have. I wanted to ask you, though, uh, and, and your wonderful spirit. I think covers something in this topic because in my experience a lot of this is not nice at all and my concern uh, and this comes out of my own congregation is whether we're in the church offering a real alternative to what we're seeing in the culture and, and, the, and there's through that we were brought up with an idea which now seems quaint and especially quaint and I don't mean to challenge you at all when I say this in this presentation, that the church is countercultural. Right. And I, I, I don't hear that phrase very much anymore, but I've always lived by it, tried to live by it. And I, wanna, I don't want to be long-winded here, but in my congregation specifically, but in, in the United States, this capitalism is not working for almost 50% of Americans. This is in the, the recent article in Atlantic Monthly by Greber. Is that his name? Yeah. yeah. It's not working at all. Okay, and so what I want to I want to ask you about is where is this quaint notion that the church offers something quite distinct in a, in a countercultural way? Where did it go? Yeah, uh, it's um, it's not on television. <laughs> no, I don't find the message countercultural, particularly as it relates to our kind of profit market driven mentality mentality there's um, it, if anything it amplifies that in um, in Christians and it doesn't necessarily offer a critique of it so particularly on that issue you're not going to find it on but I think your hope is that if the internet thrives you could maybe find that on the internet yes possibly on the internet as as this kind of space where other voices are heard and I've heard um, liberal Protestant talking talking about this thing. One is a pastor of a, a relatively large church, and his father was a pastor of a really large church, and he said, my dad and his cohort of um, civil rights leaders and preachers were kind of adamantly against going on television because they felt it was like, it offered like entertainment value. And he says, but I wonder whether they missed the boat, you know, that, that this was a space for reaching mass people with a, with a powerful message, but they retreated from going on television because they felt like it would kind of water down, if you will, the gospel. But I, you know, I also, you know, heard a, uh, a pastor that I interviewed um, in Texas, who I don't necessarily focus on in the book, who talked about how he was on television for a moment, um, but then decided to come off of television because he felt like to stay on religious broadcasting would require him to become a prosperity preacher because he would need the money in order to pay the bills. And so he went back primarily to radio um, as opposed to television. Theodore Parker used to speak in a hall before there was even radio on Sunday afternoons, 1,400 people 
when coffee grows. I don't know what that means, but it tells me that there are other ways. It's not only this way. Right. And maybe the church really does have a, a distinctive, something distinctive to, to offer. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was wondering, um, <laughs> <laughs> what are the effects on, on a broader audience in terms of these televangelists, uh, these black televangelists, um, not black or. <laughs> Right, how large or how, how diverse are their audiences? This is a historic issue, right? So white preachers, male and female, have preached to large congregations of African Americans and can build a church. Paula White pastors a huge church in Florida now is predominantly black. Um, but you don't necessarily see the reverse, right? So as a dynamic and America's preacher, you know, T. Jakes was on the cover of Time magazine as America's new preacher. As you know, as dynamic and engaging as, as he is as a preacher, if you go to his church, it's you know, I don't know, 98% African American. Um, so there is a way in which that does not kind of translate into large congregations of non-blacks um, watching his or whites, if you will, watching his program, or at least participating as regular members of his church. Um, but that's not to say that he doesn't have white ministers on staff or that he doesn't support um, white female preachers and male preachers because he does a lot of that kind of outreach. But it does not translate in the numbers of people um, who come to his church. I was wondering if there's any places where you saw any of these televangelists coming up against a language barrier or if this is something that is um, like being dubbed and like marketed across different like language communities, um, and if so, if they're trying to like tap into new markets, or if like certain markets are already kind of carved out by different groups of evangelists. Uh, language barriers. Yeah, so like, like English language versus like Spanish uh, or like Chinese. Or you know, this is this is an interesting question. So, um, Adir Maceo, who's pastor of the Universal Church in um, Brazil does the one of the largest churches. He certainly is one of the wealthiest people in Brazil. He owns a television station. <coughs> the Universal Church, Spanish-speaking, is all over the world. So they're in South Africa, they're in Australia, they're in the U.S. So somehow the language barrier is a is they figured out a way to get beyond it, whether it's through translators or what have you. But it is a powerful kind of dynamic church and. When T.D. Jakes has his MegaFest International, so, or his MegaFest conferences, I've been to several of them, and so he'll, he'll, there'll be a session where he's, he's, he's talking and he'll say, well, we want to welcome our, our, our community MegaFest in Australia. And so they'll show all the people in Australia, we want to welcome a MegaFest in South Africa, and so, or wherever people are. So there's a, a way in which, even though they're kind of local, they're still trying to reach global. So And he does that through um, video. He'll video them. In. So it seems like um, the internet and radio are kind of the bookends of the television age mm -hmm. of um, you know evangelists and so on. And so um, did people you know raise the kind of money on radio, or were they more um, focused on, you know, the, the redemption, you know, gospel um, way to salvation and so on? And I guess I'm wondering with the internet, 
how do people do people raise money on the internet? Do they are they successful doing that? And and um, is that where maybe this is kind of going at some point in time? Um, so this is a great place for me to plug Lerone Martin's book. <laughs> Glad about it. Um, so Lerone Martin has his um, book out, um, Preaching on Wax, where he talks about African Americans. Um, and radio and the phonograph. And one of the things he argues is that this, what is seen as kind of new emphasis <laughs> on marketing is actually not new. But that black preachers, are, even on, in the moment where there's a phonograph and they're doing race records, there's a st <coughs> strong emphasis on or question about, are you preaching the gospel to kind of save people? Or are you preaching the gospel to make money? And the, the station owners, Capitol Records, and various record owners, wanted to tap and get the preachers who could draw the biggest audiences. And so the question came, how do you draw the biggest audiences and produce the biggest sales? What kinds of messages do you need to preach? Do you need to preach a racial uplift message? Or do you can you preach against racism? And so there are all these kinds of questions that emerge, not in you know 2016, but that happened in the early part of the 20th century as well. Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's all the address. Things for their own own usage and benefits. 
So we've been going for quite a time and had a wonderful conversation. Of course, any of these conversations, people can linger in the room, have something more to eat and drink, talk to our speakers. But let's conclude by thanking Nimi and Catherine, especially Norma.